I was trying to think if I had any like funny sorts of jokes or... Yeah, let's tell a time joke. I've got one. All right. Let me Google one. There's got to be one. I there's got to like be there's one. Like, why did the man put a clock under his desk? That's disgusting. <laughs> oh, what did the street clock say to the tower clock? Hi there, spelled H-I-G-H. Oh, this is a good one. Why did the pendulum stop moving? It lost its swing. Let me think. You keep saying them so fast. I want to think okay. of them. Okay. Okay. I got you. Why didn't the clock work? Because it was broken. <laughs> so I'm glad I let you think on that one. Um, No, the answer is it needed a hand. Okay. Let's do something different. What do you call a grandfather clock? No, no. Let me, let me get this one. An old timer. Nice. You got it. We're on the same website. <laughs> All right. Cool. I'll let you, I'll let you finish on a high note. What time does the duck wake up? The quack of dawn. We're on the same website. <laughs> Why are we like this? We are not using any of that, JJ. Absolutely not. I thought that was a fantastic. All right. All right. I feel like you just didn't really get the hi there joke, but once it clicks <laughs> for you, you're going to you're gonna think it was No, genius. you literally spelled out hi there. I got the hi there joke. No, but it's because one's high up. I don't think you've gotten it. Oh, is that why? <laughs> I thought it was because one of them was on drugs. Is that you? <laughs> Yeah. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios. As we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessor. Why are we like this? Yeah. For those of you who haven't figured it out, today we're going to be talking about time and time management in chess. No, not time management in chess, just time philosophically. Right. So we hope you've done your required viewing of the original Back to the Future movies. Do you want to say a little bit about why this is a topic we thought was worth talking about, particularly on a podcast about chess and psychology? I think... This comes up so, so much. Like I lose track of my clock. I don't use my clock right. I run out of time. Oh, absolutely. And maybe to even make a distinction between the kinds of people who have the presence of mind to view their time management as a weakness versus the people who externalize and be like, I was playing well until I ran out of time as if this is a thing that just happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I almost use that time as a crutch when I'm playing. I don't want to blunder. I don't want to make that bad move and and lose the game instantaneously. So I'm someone who plays very slowly. I use up my clock for sure. What it's there for. Yeah, right. It's true though. We'll get back to that. But it's only been fairly recently that I've felt more comfortable playing on my instincts Mm -hmm. rather than double checking and trying to use my time at the beginning stages of the game, like especially in that middle game. And then oftentimes I'll have a good position that I like. I certainly won't be losing. It'll at least be equal. I might even be winning. And then I run out of time at the end. And it's really easy for me to be like, well, if I had more time, like I would have won this game and I actually feel fine about myself as opposed to, well, I might have been winning because I spent more time thinking than my opponent who was playing more quickly, but they did it correctly. 
I did not. So exactly. I wonder if there's even like that emotional crutch there of like, well, it makes me feel better when I lose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I lost in this way that's more palatable, right? Right. And some of it goes back to what your goals are, because if the goal is to play the best chess you can, then that might involve taking longer than your opponents and maybe even too long in the early stages, but that can be a way to build up the kind of instinct to play better, faster in the future. But if your goal yeah. is to win the games within the time constraints you have, then playing the best moves can actually get in the way of building up the best habits. It's the everlasting struggle. And it's so funny when you say that, JJ, because it's like a light bulb moment for me that I get all the time that I don't feel like should be a light bulb moment of, oh yeah, I could be playing to try to win the most games. <laughs> Sometimes when I sit down to play chess, I literally have to be like, okay, I'm going to try to win this one. Mm-hmm. Do other people have this problem? I really think it's just me. Like, oh, I use this as like an emotional crutch. Maybe nice. I just do it because it feels better. Yeah. And I think that is a very common thing between the people who say it feels better because I have no control of my time and the people who say, well, I know I have control of my time, but I'd rather lose because of time than lose because I find out that even with time, I'm just not good. And that's a very common thing. There's also something I think really interesting that we'll get into about what I almost want to call the phenomenology of time pressure of just like what it's like to be panicking as you're seeing the seconds tick down. That's totally what I was thinking about when you were talking, JJ. I feel like there's also this other effect where I literally see I only have six seconds on my clock and I need to make a move and I freeze. I feel like deer in headlights. Like my brain is not calculating moves. Like I'm staring at the screen. Nothing is happening up here. It is the worst feeling in the world. It feels like a very fight or flight moment. Fight, flight, or freeze. Yes. So I think that these are going to be two of the axes we focus on are going to be this question of time as the excuse or reason for losing and the experience of being low on time. And I want to talk about these phenomena. I want to talk about what we can do about them and various other things. The reason why we wanted to talk about this now is because I just spent an entire weekend in time pressure. Totally. Two rapid tournaments, four games one day, five the next, game 60s one day, game 30s the next. I think I was under 10 seconds in five of my nine games. Oh, I didn't know that, JJ. I think you only told me... I only remember the the one or two where you're like, oh, this was serious time pressure. I think it was the one where your handwriting got really bad. <laughs> score sheet. I was like, I loved like watching this degrade. You're like, yeah, I had less than 10 seconds on my clock the last 20 moves. And my score was like two and a half out of five in those games. But I think what's yeah. really making me think about time pressure isn't that because I anticipated playing with less time that there would be more scrambles and whatnot. What was interesting was that three of those five games, my opponent was under a minute when I still had a solid nine or 10 minutes. Right. And we ended up both under 10 seconds. Which, yeah, I mean, that alone is fascinating um, because that seems like a situation where you could have noticed like, okay, I have this huge time advantage. How can I use it? Like, would that impact the way you play chess? <laughs> yes. But then somehow you're actually equalizing time. So it seems like it just didn't really play out the way that you probably in hindsight might've hoped it would. Yeah. And I kind of feel like I'm not mad that I, at first I was mad that I was losing my time advantage, but then when I went through the games, I ended up with a totally different conclusion. Okay, I'm really curious to hear what that is because it's interesting to even hear you conceptualize it as I lost my time advantage mm-hmm. as opposed to I used my time, <laughs> like our time equalized. But <laughs> if you spent that time thinking about the position in a way that your opponent didn't, that could help. 
But the tricky thing is that your time is also your opponent's time. Exactly. So when you're looking at the position thinking, so are they. Yes. So there actually might be an advantage to playing kind of quicker and not quote unquote using your clock. I know that when I'm up on time, I tend to take longer thinks. And something mm. that I build into that think is what is a move I can play that will cause my opponent to have to think, even if it's not my best move. But the catch 22 is the longer you spend looking for that move, the more time they have to start anticipating the crazy shit you could be trying to pull. Yeah. And and a lot of people I think won't necessarily be thinking it's hard about the crazy shit. They'll probably be looking for the solid lines, but yeah, I wonder what, what is your thought process JJ in those moments where you have nine minutes on your clock, your opponent has one minute. How are you spending that time? Right. So what I realized was that my goal was to keep the extra time and to play quickly. Um, my friend Jason, who's at the tournament, like he said that he and his friend, they're both like national master strength players. Like the joke they make about rapid games is just just play good moves fast. You're like, yeah, easy. Or or, or, not, or like, no, maybe it's not even good moves. Just like play like simple moves fast. That was my goal. And then I realized that I realized the reason why I was failing at my goal. Um, okay. So the simple moves I was looking for were moves that continued to keep the pressure on my opponent in some way. So Anything that kept a pressure on a weakness or probed a new weakness or made some sort of threat or kept some piece sort of active, I see one positive thing that it does that my opponent has to consider, and that's enough to play it. Why? That sounds like a pretty decent way to handle somebody who has a handful of seconds on their clock when you have minutes. I know. I was about to say, yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) What's the problem with playing that way? Is that you're only thinking about your plans and what you want to accomplish, and you're actually not taking into consideration that your opponent has their own plans, I'm guessing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And when they have more time, I'm more inclined to be like, okay, cool. Here's something that probes some sort of weakness. But is this the key weakness? Is this as relevant as the weaknesses they could try and probe? And what are my weaknesses? What, what are my weaknesses? What is the source of their counterplay going to be like? Yeah. And I think that those questions, even though they're more central to how I think about chess and slower games, I think they both, they, they're hard questions. So they take longer. And I think I was learning about myself. They're maybe just less internalized as well. So yeah. when I started wanting to play faster moves to keep the pressure on in order to keep that extra time, um, I started thinking less about their goals and routinely what I found was happening in the three of the five games where when I got into time pressure, I had a very good position or a much better position than my opponent was I would play these simple moves that make some sort of threat or probe some sort of weakness quickly. And then I would overlook a move that probes a problem here, like trades off a piece that was doing a good defensive job or hits my weakness. That was the source of most of my advantage or something. It's just more central to the game. Then I realized that, the source of my advantage is about to evaporate and the best moves I can see involve giving up that advantage and kind of conceding that we're equal. And then my choices are I can play that move quickly, concede that we're equal, and then still have a lot of extra time in an equal position. Or I can use that time to see if that really is the best continuation or if I can actually find some flaw in their move because they had to make that move fast, right? And then to me, that does become like a type of loss aversion. Like if you were in that same position with those same clocks mm-hmm. and you had just magically gotten there, you might be like, great, 
this position is mostly equal, but I have a small time advantage and I feel good and I'm going to play the way that I would play the position normally. But if it's coming from a sense of loss of uh-huh. I had an advantage and now it's gone and now we're in this position, you might actually be playing from a slightly different psychological or emotional space that does impact the decisions that you're making. That That's so interesting. That makes complete sense. And I think you're right, but that's not how I was thinking about it. I'm not convinced the way I was thinking about it was bad either there. So on the flip side, let's say that you assess that this move keeps things equal, but I'll still have five minutes to your one minute. Okay. And then you play that move. And then after the game, your friend comes up to you and is like, why'd you play that move? I thought such and such could keep your advantage. And if you went a move deeper in your calculation, you would have seen it and kept the advantage. Then you look at that and you go, holy shit, I had five times as much time as they did. And I just made the move conceding a quality when I could have used two of my four extra minutes and probably found a resource that kept the advantage. Why was I so quick to concede that I had lost the advantage when I had so much extra time? Yeah, interesting. So it sounds like there was a lot of things kind of underlying that pressure that you felt kind of hitting you from a bunch of different directions. I mean, those are a lot of voices to grapple with, JJ. Right. So I don't think that I mind that I leaned towards the let's use this time to see if I can salvage something. And because I figure then the worst thing that happens is when I get my clock gets down to almost what their time is, I can play the move that equalizes, but I'd rather use I'd rather have 90 seconds to one minute and a very high degree of confidence there is nothing better than five minutes to one minute with a low degree of confidence that something was better. But I would actually still describe that as a loss aversion because in that scenario, it's sort of saying, if there is something better to be mm -hmm. had, I want to make sure that I find it. I don't want to go back and look after the game and say, oh, there was some line, some calculation, some variation, and it slipped through my fingers. As opposed to what you and I talk about a lot, which Uh is I'm going to play the solid moves that keep my position stable and Uh keep an advantage that I already had. In this case, it might be the clock instead of Mm. activity of pieces or a different type of advantage. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like what you did there using my words against me. Yeah. One of those is like more forcing, right? And we kind of talk about Mm -hmm. how it can feel very tempting to look for those forcing brilliant moves when really what we need to be doing in certain positions is holding on to an advantage. Yeah, that makes so much sense, but I'm still I'm still not convinced. So this is great. Yeah, that's okay. Um no, I no, this is this is so interesting because the other thought here is okay, but given that they were in extreme time pressure, the move they made that we weren't expecting that just rocked us, that just changed our total evaluation of the position was a move they blitzed <laughs> well, out. It's us. It's a wee issue. It's a wee issue. But it's a move they had to blitz out, right? Yeah. So it's not like they were sitting on this and like it's a very well measured thing either. They're playing on instinct or impulse. They're sure. playing this move because in very little time to make the judgment, they thought that it created a problem for me or solved the problem. And that's uh, now, why you wanted to take your extra time yes. to say, okay, let's see if this actually works. Yeah, this is what's fucking me up. It's like when there's clearly nothing there, using your time just to make sure there isn't some sort of forcing brilliant thing that yeah, is loss aversion. But When it's a little bit less clear, I think maybe what's hard here is that these can both be ways of using our advantage. One is I can quickly concede the position is equal and my advantage is I have a lot more time. And the other is to say, rather than quickly conceding the position is equal, I have a three-minute buffer to really double, triple, quadruple check a move you did not have time to maybe even single check. 
And which one is better? I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of happy medium, but I'm not sure that either one is the same as when I declined a perpetual and started separating my pawns and lost an endgame with no losing chances. Can I ask the question differently to help us maybe get to the bottom of it, at least in this? I love getting to the bottom. I love getting to a bottom. Um, In hindsight, with all the knowledge you have now and all Mm -hmm. the reflection that you've done, how do you wish you had used your time? How do you wish you had played in that exact scenario? Yeah. To have avoided getting into severe time trouble, I wish I played slower. Right. (laughs) Which I think a lot of people hear that and they're like, that doesn't make any sense. It does. If you're in time trouble, you're supposed to play faster. You would think that. You would think that. And that's why you have time troubles. (laughs) (laughs) When I was looking back through it, I realized every game where I started to let my time advantage slip were those positions where I decided to make the choice that because an unexpected move was just played and my advantage seemed to be slipping or completely gone, I decided that I wanted to use my time advantage, really double, triple checking and making sure I had to concede that. And And maybe JJ, that's mm -hmm. even what I was thinking of when I'm saying loss aversion. I don't just mean loss aversion of a brilliant tactic. Also loss aversion of the advantage is the clock. (laughs) So it's like, I don't want to lose this advantage that I have. I'm going to play quickly. I want to hold on to all the minutes. And now I've played so fast that I have to calculate. So now I've lost the position and I've lost the clock. And yeah, it all kind of slips through your fingers, right? You scooped me. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Exactly. So that's exactly what we're getting to. So I realized those moments where I was having that... um, oh, I, I decide I'm going to use my time to really make sure that this the character of the position is changing. I'm fine that I decided to do that. But then I realize the move and each of those positions, the move one or two, one or two moves before that moment where the time advantage slipped, I made a move very quickly that was just pressuring something, only thinking about my side of the board, only thinking about right. their weaknesses without anticipating their play. And if the more I would have slowed down and really think about, well, what are they trying to achieve? What is the weakest thing that they could pressure? What is the source of complication that they're trying to create? If I had slowed down a bit and thought more about that, then I wouldn't have played these various artificial moves that looked like they were making a threat or making some sort of continuing pressure while ignoring their goal. And then I wouldn't have found myself in those positions where they suddenly had counterplay or I suddenly lost my advantage. And then I wouldn't have had to use that time. Yeah, JJ, that's fascinating. And I'm super curious why you think you might have shifted more into that headspace Mm. when you weren't considering the counterplay Mm -hmm. or your opponent's plans. Was that purely because of the time pressure that you felt? Or, okay, I'm going to try to play quickly. So then Mm. that kind of evaporated. Because usually I feel like that's something that is on the forefront of your planning and chess thinking. Yeah, yeah, I love I love being really annoying and thinking about what my opponent is doing first and making my plans kind of reactively off of that just to make sure that wh- how- however much I'm struggling, I don't mind as long as I know they're struggling more. That's like why I look up to like Korchnoi as a player. I don't I don't need much. I just need to make sure you have nothing. It's beautiful actually. I really like it. It's annoying. Yeah, so why did that change? Well, I think it's because I'm so poisoned by online chess that when I see 
that time get under a minute or under 30 seconds. I've played so many thousands of games with no increment, no delay online that I really just have a deep down subconscious belief that like, oh, I can actually really play the clock in a way that even when you put a five second delay, you can't in the same way. And so I think I became such a believer in playing the clock that I was playing the way that I would play in an online no delay, no increment game, which Mm. is anything that makes even the vaguest semblance of a threat is something that's going to slow them down enough fractions of a second to add up to, to helping with the flag. Which is so funny because it kind of is the same style of play that you did criticize in our aggression episode. Mm-hmm. It's like, this feels aggressive, but it's actually discounting all these types of play that create more problems and actually are more of a headache and might feel more aggressive towards your opponent. Right, right. And like, because probably the best thing you can do when you're trying to flag somebody is if you play threats and captures, the very moves that look aggressive, but if anything, lead to too much clarity to actually keep the pressure on the board. Exactly. Those are the ones that you know the response to. Okay, you've threatened a piece. Now I have to you know, take mm-hmm. care of this puzzle, but it's actually very clear mm-hmm. where my attention needs to be. Those can mm-hmm. happen way faster. And so the most, in quotes, aggressive moves can be the best flagging moves, even if they're the worst chess move. And so there's that tension between Truly. there. I think on some level, that's how my brain was just trying to think more of asking the wrong question of what can I do of just centering myself right. or being more selfish in terms of my own plans or goals. And maybe also respecting my opponent less because they had less time, assuming that they wouldn't really be able to come up with very much to do. And so as long as I was doing something, they wouldn't have enough time to do anything. Which again, I think discounts the fact that when we're using our clock, mm-hmm. the opponents are using our clock too. Well, that's why the goal is to be making these moves so fast. Like if I can take five seconds with a move yeah. that threatens a pawn, then they don't get m- more than five seconds to come up with a plan and they have to respond to the threat. But, mm-hmm. but so that that's kind of the goal. And that so when I say that I wish I played slower, I think what yeah. I mean is I rather would have given them a minute, 45 seconds or whatever to start to think about a plan if I got to also think about their plan because I had good positions and would have found moves that shut their plans down in that time. Yeah. But instead they would they were able, they're good players. That, and so they're able to find if I give them five, 10 seconds and play a nothing move, that can be enough time to be like, well, I've been waiting to snap off your most annoying piece for 20 turns. So I didn't really need 45 seconds to figure out the plan. You needed to take 45 seconds to figure out which move kept your piece on the board. Totally. Totally. Right. So I feel like you had a beautiful point about that, that I want you to talk about more, which is how we think about these things as time trouble. Like Mm -hmm. I played too slowly and I lost my clock or I flagged, it came down on time when when actually that's not the way we're thinking about it. It's time mismanagement. There were times where you were actually playing too fast and that's yes. why your clock evaporated. And I'm and, and that I'm way more critical of myself in hindsight for playing too fast. I don't mind taking as long as I did to really make sure that I had the correct assessment of the position. That's one of many approaches, but that's a good approach to using those extra minutes is making sure that you're not conceding your advantage. But the problem was playing so quickly when you had more time and not thinking about the game the right way. Yeah, this is something I was thinking of so on Twitter, cringe chess. They're a badass and national master strength player, but they said something a long time ago on Twitter about how it always upsets them to see uh, time trouble or time time management or people who are bad at time management being used synonymously with people who get into time pressure or people who play too yeah. slow. Because why isn't there as much hate, you know, for in the Pamyashi who will 
finish his games with over an hour on the clock. And sometimes they're brilliant wins. And other times he like hangs a piece in a world championship game with 45 minutes (laughs) on his clock. So the point there that I was thinking of was, yeah, playing too fast is just as much time mismanagement as playing too slow is. Having an hour on your clock and blitzing out your moves can be its own kind of time trouble. That is not what anyone thinks of when they talk about time trouble. Right. But then what I was thinking about in the context of my own games was, oh, not only is this even stronger point of not only is playing too fast just as much time mismanagement as playing too slow, but holy shit, they're just actually two sides of the same coin. That the reason why I was getting into playing quote unquote too slow and getting under a minute was because I was trying to recalibrate after playing too fast. And then the position did become complicated in ways you didn't expect. And now it's that moment where you say, shoot, I have to do a deep think. And luckily, you actually did have some time to do that. So you felt Mm -hmm. like you lost your clock. But that could also happen in a position where you don't have the time. And then you get into a losing position very quickly. Right, right. But then the problem is once you both get under 10 seconds, that's when anything can happen. And whether you have a losing or a winning position becomes far less relevant than it was when you still had that minute. Yeah, totally. So it's kind of easy in hindsight, you know, the question wasn't really a fair one. You know, how do you wish you had played the clock? It's so easy Mm -hmm. to see that when you look back at the game. Oh, now that I'm looking at this slowly Mm -hmm. and outside of the context of a tournament, I see that this was the position where I should have done that deep calc Mm -hmm. and maybe this one wasn't. But that gets so hard to know when you're sitting in the seat. While you're playing that game of chess, JJ, what are the cues or what are the things that you're thinking about that sort of tip you off? This is the moment that I need to be calculating versus this is a moment I don't want to waste my clock. How do you sort of figure that? Yeah, if only. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? This is so hard. But I think there is an answer there, which is I think that I want to draw a distinction between the kind of deep think I was doing when I'm like, oh, shit. I missed that move. Now I'm going to be in trouble unless I pull something out of my ass. There's a difference between that kind of deep calc and the sort of my position is fine. I still have an advantage. Let me not just play the first decent-ish move that pops into my head. Those are two very different kinds of deep calc. Yeah. So I think that realizing that distinction has helped me realize a lot that the cues can be as simple as Are you about to play a move because it looks active without having identified what your opponent's main goal is? You don't need to take an eight minute deep calc and use eight of your nine minutes to figure out their plan. But if so, maybe you should take another 20, 30 seconds to do that. And then you don't have to either play a move in five seconds that gives up your advantage just to keep your time advantage or a move that uses all your time to try and keep your positional advantage, but lose your time advantage. So I think what I regret doing is not being cognizant of the fact that I was playing what felt like online blitz moves. Yeah. And if I, and if the clue is, Oh, you're just doing something because it quote unquote looks active, but do you have any idea even what they're playing for, or if you know what they're playing for, have you looked for their candidate moves that are going to try to achieve it? Because there's only so much they can gain in those extra 10, 20 seconds you spend doing that. And something else I'm realizing in this moment is I think I have another answer to the question of what changes. Why are you doing that? One of the best pieces of advice I've ever seen, I think I saw it in Play Like a Grandmaster by Kotov, is how managing how you spend your opponent's time. So when, when your opponent is taking a long time on their move, what are you thinking about? And Kotov's suggestion is 
it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be calculating variations unless like if you think that their best moves are all like checks and captures and forcing moves then it might make sense to be spending that time calculating the responses but if there's a handful of moves they could play none of them capture anything or make any concrete threat and then there's a handful of moves it doesn't make a whole lot of time to try and calculate a bunch of variations that each have like a 20% chance of arising right but rather than just waiting or getting impatient this is a good time to ask more general questions of what are my worst place pieces what are their worst place pieces who do i wish could stay on the board where are the weaknesses um if these pawn breaks happened whose pieces would get more out of it and the goal there is then when it becomes your turn if they t- have a 10 minute think you've just spent 10 minutes thinking about which pieces you need to improve or trade which pieces need pawns to move and then you see quickly oh okay with this move one of my candidate moves pins their knight and trades my bishop for the knight i just assessed that their knight could be useful with this pawn structure and my bishop had a hard time developing bingo because i had done all that work on their time i immediately know what to play here i just <laughs> yeah no i'm sorry i just it like blows my mind because i think that <laughs> I'm sure that a lot of people listening to podcasts are like, yeah, that might seem obvious, but to me that is a revelation. I think but I think to a lot of people they don't. I've definitely had lots of students including strong players well over 12, 14, 1500 USCF where like I'll look at one of their games and I'll pause after their own move and just ask them, you know, if I see that their opponent took a long time or just be like, okay, your opponent takes some time here. What are you thinking about now? And routinely they just kind of don't understand the question or like the good ones will just really admit I'm not really sure it never really occurred to me to be intentional about that time. Yeah, and I think for me even one step beyond that is I know I should be using that time, but mm-hmm. how am I using that time? I'm doing it the exact way you just described is not the most effective way. You're playing guess the move. Yeah, what do I think my opponent is about to play and how am I going to respond? That feels yeah. so instinctual, yeah. right? So I love that shift. I really want to very deliberately spend time practicing doing that, just kind of looking for those higher level general themes, looking for activity, thinking about it in a way that doesn't require me correctly guessing my opponent's move, which sometimes you do, but also sometimes you don't. And now you right. feel like that time's been wasted. I calculated a line that's not happening. Exactly. But the themes on the board, the weaknesses, what are my static and dynamic advantages here like even just evaluating the position what are my goals what are my opponent's goals higher level that can't ever be time wasted yeah and i think the best part about that is that also helps with playing quickly in the good way so i had a lot of moments especially in the game 30s and some of my rounds against people around like 2 300 points lower rated than me where they would take a couple minutes on a single move which is fine and in that time i would assess you know what my positional goals are then they would play a move that didn't occur to me whether it was a bad move or one of any decent moves just something i spent 0 seconds thinking about but then i look at it and i'm like okay i assess that these are the pieces i wanted to centralize oh that move just now means that when i centralize my knight to d5 them pushing their pawn to b4 means my centralized knight move that i saw as an improving move hits a hanging pawn that it didn't before and then right. i can play knight d5 in 10 seconds before they have the chance to really ask any of those questions and settle down because you understand yeah, the position exactly. right like in that deep way so then you can be reflexive because you mm-hmm. haven't been staring at these details where you're exactly. really missing the forest for the trees if you have that high level of view you can react to lots of different stuff exactly and that's a great way to build the time advantage because you get to keep spending yeah. their long thanks figuring out what sorts of things you wish you could play 
And then if they don't play a move that is sensitive to that, or if they play a move that enhances that, then bingo, you have your move and you've already done all the work. Ah, oh, that is so brilliant. There's like really something there. JJ, I'm I'm excited about this conversation very selfishly for my own chest. Good. That's what the, that's why we do this. I know. I know. I'm like almost embarrassed to say it because I'm scared that other people are like, yeah, that's so obvious. Like, of course, it's what we should be doing. But no. to me, that was not obvious at all. Well, one reason why it's not obvious is especially to the generation of players, I guess even pre-pandemic, but especially who got in during the pandemic where Blitz and I guess Rapid has been and just online chess more generally, which lends itself to faster time controls is going on is there's less time to do that. I was totally going to say that. You don't have the problem of playing a two-hour aside game where you genuinely have to figure out if my opponent is going to spend seven minutes on this move when there's no tactic to calculate, no forcing variation to calculate. What the fuck am I supposed to do for seven minutes? Because you can spend 30 seconds just trying to gain your bearings and that's fine in a rapid game. Or frankly, when you're playing online, you can spend 30 seconds checking your Twitter. (laughs) I feel... So targeted right now. No, I was talking about myself. No, I know that you are not targeting me, mm-hmm. but I feel targeted. Do you see? Facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> and feelings don't care about facts. Chess feels. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> yeah, between faster games and just not having the no distraction environment of an OTB tournament, there's less incentive to figure out how the fuck do I use these long stretches of time where nothing is happening. Even the way that I came to learn chess, which Mm -hmm. was actually watching a lot of YouTube videos and Twitch streams, I feel like when those higher level players are explaining what they're doing, they're talking about the things that are very easy for people to understand and to verbalize. So they're drawing arrows. Mm -hmm. Here's the moves I want to play. Here's the moves I think my opponent will play, or here's the line, or here's the tactic. Mm -hmm. Maybe I think... In that sense, they are missing what you're describing that you could be thinking about instead, which are here these higher level themes. And those are really hard to communicate. And those might not feel as juicy on a Twitch stream, but that has really potentially impacted the way that I'm thinking about the game Mm. in between moves. So something that can be good for that is watching speed runs where they're huge mismatches, because that's where you're going to have players who are thinking about general things they would like to achieve. But then they're playing people who aren't anticipating those things. And so you might have somebody be like, my goal is to outpost on the D5 square. So unless they play blank, blank, or blank to stop me from doing that, that's what I'm going to do. Then they play some random move. And then your streamer spends two seconds before just grabbing the square, just like they said they were going to. And it's like, oh, they just noticed the outpost. Then they ask, can it be stopped? And then as soon as their opponent played a move that didn't stop it, they just grabbed the outpost because they identified it. And oh, that's and you're going to see more of that in mismatches because between two equal players playing blitz, there's not going to be a whole lot of cases of one side being super sensitive to a positional feature that the other side misses when they're both blitzing out moves. Right. But the whole reason I brought all of this up now, Julia, is because I realized this is the answer to your earlier question, which is what changed when your opponent got into time trouble and you started only thinking about your own moves? The answer is I stopped having long thinks on my opponent's time to think about the general positional features because they were blitzing out moves. 
Oh my God, that's so true. <laughs> Wait, now that you say it, it's so obvious. Yes, I, I just put that together too. That's the answer. That's definitely at least a big part of the answer. Yeah. Yeah. And so the reason why it didn't feel obvious to me that I was switching how I played and being more selfish in my thought and not anticipating their goals is because I probably was spending my own time the way I usually do, looking at a few candidate moves and picking out the one that probes causes the most problems. Yeah. But I wasn't doing that after spending their time thinking about both of our goals and what the real problems were. And so I was making the same judgments off of a much more impoverished set of stimuli. Oh my God, that is so true. Damn. Look at this. Is this like what this all of your duo. therapy clients are like, where they just like solve all of their problems by themselves just because you ask some questions? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it feels really good when they do that, actually. My favorite thing is when my clients, they'll say something that seems so obvious and be like, wow, I've never thought about that before. But now that I've thought about it, it seems so obvious. It's like the best thing someone could say. Like, yeah, that's what we're here for. Totally. That's beautiful. It is beautiful. It's cool to watch you do that. Yeah. No, I feel like I feel like I've really had this breakthrough. So now that we've solved time pressure. <laughs> we solved it. You're welcome, everybody. Feel free to donate to our buy us a coffee. Link will be in the show notes. Use code Grishuk for 20% off your next Stouffer's. <laughs> we got to start offering people better things than Stouffer's, JJ. We can. I believe there's going to be a giveaway with our lovely sponsors who we love at Chessable. Oh yeah, big time. I mean, this might have already happened by the time we release it. But hey, did you know that Chessable has some really good courses? They're not just a place to learn openings. In fact, you can work on every facet of your game. And the, <laughs> the most important thing you can do is enter a giveaway to win the video course for the lifetime repertoire on the Benoni. There's literally nothing better you could do for your chest today. If you're thinking about what is the whole of my chest game, where are my biggest weaknesses? What could most improve my overall chest play and ELO? You got to learn the Benoni. <laughs> and for those of you who are curious, my queue is down to 6,208 moves, but I think that's because mm. I deleted my progress on a chapter I wanted to relearn in the Benoni course, not because I learned more moves. <laughs> this is all just to say chessable, eat fresh. <laughs> if you're not spending your time on the Benoni right now, you're probably not getting the most out of your game. We believe that. JJ, say you believe that. I, be I want to believe. <laughs> if we say it enough times, we'll start to believe that. I mean, that's, that's my approach to playing the Benoni. Did you see Ben Johnson call me out on Twitter for the quote-unquote shame in my voice when I talked about my D4 rep as Black? I'm not sure if everyone knows that Julia was recently interviewed on another podcast about her own chest improvement, and you should all throw this episode in the trash and listen to that <laughs> chest journeys. No. But Julia describes herself as playing the Benoni unironically. And <laughs> Benoni Johnson thought that she was ashamed <laughs> of playing the Benoni when she's clearly ashamed of playing it without a hint of irony, which is shameful. I used to play it, not totally ironically, just like a little bit, just a little bit like, hey, this is like the funny thing that we do. This is like a cute, quirky thing about us. But now I just play it. I, I feel like I still play it ironically. Like my recent thing has been when in doubt, play H6G5 or just straight up G5 as a sacrifice. So yeah. that's a little ironic. It's like <laughs> rain on your wedding day. <laughs> I need to get back there, JJ. You're poisoning me. I thought that we were like really going for it. Anyway, get the chessable course. If you want to be friends with me and JJ, you can. You just have to spend your money. Mm -hmm. Buy me a coffee is a great way to spend it. You can book lessons with me. 
I guess you could just give money to me with the instruction to give it to Julia. I don't think she'll put her Venmo on the internet. If you'll give me money, I'll give you my Venmo. (laughs) The other thing that I thought was just so interesting was the experience of being in time pressure. So we talked about the how to avoid it question or how to not get, how to not lose all your time and had the brilliant solution of spend your time more wisely or slowing down can actually be the best way to not have to slow down too much. But then there's the question of, okay, you tried to do everything, but you know, chess is hard. Maybe you panicked. Maybe you just had to calculate a lot. Maybe you tried really hard, but you just missed some resources. Maybe you tried to do everything everywhere all at once. once. Can't do that. Maybe this was actually one of in one of the games where I lost my time advantage. Maybe you really have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and there's like three Aww. minutes gone. That That's cool. why you got to wear a diaper. What about that? Why aren't people wearing adult diapers to chess tournaments? There are probably answers to that question. What are they? I've never been to a chess tournament, so I don't know. Yeah, why? Are, Julia just outed herself as never being to a chess tournament when she made it clear she didn't know that we all wear adult diapers. If that was true, I would be so bad. You just get there and everyone's wearing... There is, a, there is a multiverse, JJ, where everything is the same. But everyone's wearing a diaper at every chess tournament. I'd rather gaslight you into thinking that people do that and you show up to a chess tournament like with a like full-on Pampers-sponsored like custom chess feels Pampers. But no one would be able to see it. No, you wear them on the outside. I was about to make that joke. Jeez, have you never been to a chess tournament? In order for people to be able to see the sponsorship. Festival, make this happen. <laughs> it's an outside timer. Mr. Dodgy, this has your name written all over it. Literally, you can put your name on uh, the diaper. Sorry, guys. I'm so sleep deprived. <laughs> I really need to take a nap. <laughs> I think this started because we were saying that you've tried to like be mindful of your time and not fall into the traps that lead to getting really low on the clock. But once you're really there, there's this really interesting phenomenon where I think the way I described it to you, Julia, is saying that I felt like I was blacking out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I I was totally on autopilot and I don't even remember most of the moves that you were, that I was playing. Or interestingly, I can remember what the moves were. Like after a time scramble, I lost, but it felt like I watched, I was disassociated. It felt like I was watching yeah. the moves being played. I remember that the moves were played. I remember that the game was happening. But I don't remember feeling like I was in my body or in control or had agency. Yeah. And I was curious what you had to say, first of all, about like that experience, because one thing I kind of associate that with, and I know this is a bit dramatic, but I associated a bit with traumatic experiences of yeah. feeling this sort of disassociation and thinking it's kind of funny in a kind of absurd way that like that was kind of what I associated with time travel. Yeah, I think it's a good association, though, because mm-hmm. what is the common thread between your scenario sitting at that chessboard at the tournament and a truly traumatic experience? Losing 20 rating points. <laughs> stress. Oh, oh, gotcha. <laughs> and that's stressful. So that counts. You get full credit. Excellent. But yeah, stress. Stress does that. Stress really changes that framework. So in those moments where we feel dissociated, what's actually happening? We talk mm. about this a lot in other contexts on the podcast. But we're essentially moving out of that very aware, cognitive, in-control space and moving into one that is more reflexive, that is more emotional, that is more automatic. That's how we feel under stress. That is the fight, flight, or freeze response. Okay, now I'm just on autopilot because I don't have time to think. This feels like life or death. Stress will do that to you for sure. 
So even though you are safe, you're sitting in a place where you're not in real danger, our brains do not respond to these different stressors in that way. We feel that stress response go up. We feel that cortisol, that adrenaline, and we're responding as if it's any other type of threat. So is this is this the kind of situation where asking a question like, well, how do I stop doing that is the wrong question, not just because it's kind of impossible, but also because that stress response can be useful? Or is this something that well, we should be trying to get rid of? I think that that question is a few steps away, a few steps beyond the first question that we need to be asking in the first place. JJ, you're not even on level one. You need to put that advanced <laughs> shit on there. You don't even know how the pieces move in the game yeah. of stress. Yeah, I hear you. The first question is, how do we notice when this is happening, when it's happening? Does that make Uh sense? Oh, it really does. Yeah. So it was really easy for you to be able to look back and say, in hindsight, I saw that this effect was taking place. Mm. But when you were sitting in that chair, were you aware of that dissociation? No clue. If you're dissociated, it's really hard to be aware, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would guess no. The fact that I have no clue is probably good evidence for that guess. Yeah. So that to me, is kind of the first step is how do we even start to notice that this effect is coming into play? and impacting my performance in that moment. It's really hard to do. Yeah. So we have talked some about sorts of like ways to recenter yourself and gain some sort of awareness. But this is a tricky moment because we're talking about this in the context specifically of you having very few seconds on your clock. So what can you do for that, if anything, when you don't even really even have the 20 seconds to do the five senses? Yeah, definitely. I think that the the approaches we would have to take and the work you have to be doing actually have to happen before you are sitting in the chair. (laughs) They're more preventative to say, I notice that this is happening to me when I'm in these high stress tournament situations. So in between tournaments, I'm going to start working on some of these skills that will help prevent me from being in that space once I get there, or at least help me notice when I'm getting closer to that space so that I can implement some of this before I feel totally out of body, which I know is a phrase you've also used, JJ. Is that something that you could get into a little bit, talking about what some of the skills you could do before and what those look like? So first, right off the bat, there is no one size fits all. So it will look a little bit different for different people, depending on what type of stress they're feeling, how they respond to that stress. So I think that this definitely does take a little bit of nuance and it's kind of goes by a case by case basis. But if we think about it as generally as we possibly can, when you think about those type of responses to stress that anxiety response. For example, let's say it's like a performance anxiety. This might feel similar to the way people feel before doing something like public speaking. People say, I got up there on the podium and I started talking and I don't even remember what I said. I was totally dissociated. Oh, I do that too. Yeah. So with these kind of responses, what we generally recommend, which again is kind of why I said this would happen in between tournaments. This is work that you're kind of doing slowly but surely. Is there a testable course on it? There should be. I'll make one. (laughs) Maybe. Um, essentially falls in the category of exposure. And that means that we are letting ourselves sort of make contact with that type of stress, notice the way that we're experiencing it, noticing the way that we're responding and trying to respond a little bit differently, potentially with the help of a therapist. So just to make sure I understood what you're saying, I should spend all of my chess time between tournaments playing bullet. (laughs) No, that's the opposite because you're operating so quickly that you don't need to be doing those deep things. You probably are a little dissociated and that's okay. Well, that's the exposure. <laughs> that's the exposure. That's what you said. I stopped. I okay, heard what I wanted okay. to. That's what so, I said. Just yeah. play bullet. That's actually what I recommend to all my therapy clients with every presentation that they come into my office with all the time. Yeah. Play bullet. It's it just can't play make bullet. Things, it can't make things better. If it doesn't make things worse. 
drink bullet, play bullet. bullet. You'll be fine. Get out there, kiddo. (laughs) Okay. Maybe I was just like too excited to make that joke. So what exactly do you mean by exposure? Right. So with, with all types of anxiety, one of the primary forms of treatment and intervention are these things called exposures, which means that our brain has really sort of identified that some trigger, some cue, some type of stimuli is a threat. So when we're in that context or we're exposed to that cue, our stress levels go up, our anxiety levels go up. And one sort of way that might manifest is in this case with a dissociative response. I feel like I'm not able to think clearly. I can't concentrate. I can't focus. I feel out of body. These are actually relatively common. So when we think about how do we start to reduce that reaction, how do we improve that experience? The only way that we really know how to do that is through this thing that we call exposure, which means that we actually let ourselves in a controlled environment, perhaps even in the office with a therapist, experience whatever that exact stimuli or trigger or cue is. We essentially let ourselves feel the stress response go up, but also to come back down. Because what happens Mm -hmm. is that usually when we're in those circumstances around something that creates that stress response, our bodies do fight or flight. (laughs) And a lot of times it's flight. Great. Let me remove that stimuli and let my anxiety come down. The problem is that our brains actually learn this is a threat. (laughs) And the way that I stayed safe was getting away from whatever that cue was. So instead, when we let ourselves experience the stressor and we let the anxiety response come back down, we're actually retraining our brain that this is not a real threat. I was able Mm. to sit in the presence of this uncomfortable visual, auditory, cognitive, experiential trigger and move through the anxiety and stay safe. When you do that over and over again, our brains do learn or relearn that I am safe and I can respond to this stress in a different way. Fascinating. So that makes a ton of sense. But wait, now I'm like not joking. Maybe I like should play bullet while my therapist sits there and panic as I get into time trouble (laughs) every game and then just calm down and like reorient my response to that. Yeah. But do you panic in those situations? I panic whenever the clock gets low. Do you feel that same level? Oh, I I see. Maybe not the same level, but I definitely have a sort of panic response to seeing the clock get under 10 seconds, period, whether it's a one minute game or a one hour game. Right. So I think in those scenarios, what's probably happening on the day-to-day basis is that clock is getting low and you're having that response and it might actually be adaptive for your chest, (laughs) sort of ride that almost Mm -hmm. autopilot dissociation. Like, great, I'm going to play totally on instincts. I don't even know what I'm playing. I'm not thinking. I'm not here now. That actually might help you win the game to play very quickly. And that might be why you're good at bullet. Yeah, yeah. For online chess, yeah. But if we have a a different goal, which is I want to treat this like an exposure, Uh you're going to have to lose some bullet. And you're going to say, my panic is going up. I'm going to not respond the way that I would automatically. I'm going to not play a fast move. Instead, in this moment, I'm going to practice grounding and I'm going to let my clock run out and I'm going to watch me lose the game. I'm going to lose the points and I'm going to let myself experience that stress level go up. And as I sit there, I'm going to let my stress level come back down. And if you do that in the right context, potentially like with a therapist, you could learn how to not have that same very reactive stress response when your time gets low, but you are going to lose some chess. Do you keep saying potentially with a therapist because you want to watch me tilt 200 points off my bullet rating? Oh my God. JJ, you can do that. I would do that with you. I really would. We should stream that. <laughs> Between streaming and being on Zoom, that will be perfect because my computer will already be going like 10% speed. So yeah, you're right. We should. I'll even respond to chat. 
Yeah. I'm not stressed. And- <laughs> You're stressed. I know that it's funny in a sense, but it really is true. I I think that those are things that you would have to practice in between tournaments, Mm -hmm. which is how do you recognize when you're having this response before it goes from zero to a hundred? Can you recognize it when you get to 25, 30, 35 and learning not only how to recognize it, but then once I do recognize it, what can I do that quickly grounds me? We've talked about Mm -hmm. that in Mm -hmm. previous episodes. Can you use mindfulness? Can you use grounding techniques? We can give a long list, but um, I don't know how much detail we need to go into here because what we're talking about is sort of happening before we would even implement those techniques. Um, How can I recognize that this is happening and sort of make contact again with the present moment and be in my body and be engaged with my senses? That's really hard to do. Yeah, That is not something that you're going to read one little like medium blog article and feel like you've conquered. Absolutely. That is fantastic. And it also sounds like this can be another use for Blitz is treating it as an exposure to the time struggles rather than as my goal is to win the Blitz games and play the sorts of moves that contribute to winning no increment Blitz is I'm just going to yeah. really... Yeah. And that actually makes me feel more excited to play some fast games, not care about the result. And it makes me excited to experience that panic without viewing it as something that I have to ride because I've adapted or maladapted to riding the panic to win those games, but not so much to conquer it or, def- or get over it as much as being like, I'm just going to like learn it and learn to identify with it and learn to live with it rather than in tension with it. And that's, that, that's really cool. I'm super glad we talked about this because I feel like the experience I'm describing of getting that low on time is one that a lot of people can relate to. And maybe for some people, it's not when they get under 10 seconds, but it's when they get under five minutes. Yeah. And something else that I really want to add to that is that we almost don't want to demonize even the dissociative experience. Like, why do we have that during times of stress? That can be Mm. really adaptive. That is a survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. Even for people who are experiencing something traumatic, that is something that literally can be contributing to their sense of survival and self-preservation. We're just trying to ask ourselves, is it helpful in this moment for me now? So when you're playing bullet and there's six seconds left on your clock, the answer to that actually might be, yes, this is helpful. This is going to help me win the game. Mm -hmm. But when we ask, is it helpful? All of that depends on the context of what is our goal. So if our goal becomes, I want to actually learn better skills to recognize that I'm feeling dissociated and ground myself, now it's no longer helpful. So I'm going to take a different approach and actually try to come back into the body and manage these different self-states. Amazing. This makes me feel actually hopeful about a part of chess that I've I've never would be like, oh, I had no control over getting into time trouble, but it did really feel, and I think even before this recording, I did really feel like the only approach to time trouble is just, well, if this is how I feel when my clock gets under 10 seconds, I just have to avoid getting under 10 seconds at all costs. And that's like the only thing to do. And Maybe in the moment, you know, if I'm playing a tournament tomorrow, maybe that should be the highest priority, but it does feel like there is something that I can be doing yeah. about that in the long term that does feel empowering. And I think empowering is a word that I really wanted to use there because when I think of getting low on time, there's more anxiety and panic creeping in because I know what it feels like to get to that state and I want to avoid it at all costs. And even if I'm right. not in that state yet, I'm ramping up towards it. Whereas if I feel less like this is completely the point of no return, like the point of no return should be you ran out of time. Once you ran out of time, yeah, there's nothing you can do to change the fact that you lost. I would love for you to feel empowered in two ways, JJ, which is before we get to that extreme time crunch, 
I can notice that this effect might be starting and I can help myself feel more grounded mm. and feel more cognitively in control mm. and be thinking about the position, the way, and in the time frame that I would like to. Mm. But then also once my clock gets down below 15 seconds, I feel empowered to let myself switch to <laughs> autopilot, pure instinct mode, which you maybe should be in if you want to win mm. the game. I want you to mm. feel empowered in both of those states and sort of let yourself be able to shift between one or the other, depending on the context. Yeah, absolutely. Ugh, what a good episode, Julia. Um, let's do something less serious next week. Let's like get Mr. Dodgy on or something. Oh, do you think he would? I think that he'll hear this and like jump <laughs> out of his chair. <laughs> JJ, I do not think he listens to our podcast. Put on a shirt just to rip it off superhero style and <laughs> race out of Sweden and into <laughs> Nebraska to record wait why why is he coming to nebraska i wanted to see if you would notice that nebraska is further from sweden yeah Yeah. no i did i did i'm bad at directions but not that bad but hopefully this was helpful for people i feel like we both had a lot of light bulb moments and that's what we live for yeah well i live for uh chessable's lifetime repertoire on the benoni available only on chessable that was seamless i'm somehow very impressed oh i can't wait to start that i'm gonna do that tonight tomorrow night and every night in between now and maybe the rest of my life. And if you don't, you should probably take that hashtag chess punks out of your bio. <laughs> That's why you're in time trouble is because you flaked on the Benoni. Yeah. An opening that famously leads itself to playing good moves. Speaking of playing logical moves quickly, the Benoni. <laughs> <laughs> it's pure logic, people. Okay. All right. Fuck See you chess. next week. Fuck chess. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. (laughs) Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it, at (laughs) ChessProblem. Yeah.